Robert, that's a good prayer to pray as you come up to preach. Take my life, I am yours. I know this Kentucky group's been praying that. It's good to have you all here. Thank you for coming to help us and uh, be a blessing. I know the Mennonites are back, and that's what they're doing, saying, Lord, take my life. Here we are. We want to make a difference. And that's what we want in our lives. The highest and greatest significance for every life in the room is to lay it down. It's counterintuitive, but it's the central truth of the gospel and the teaching of the Bible. If you want to know what's the heart of it, it's Christ laid down his life for you. You lay your down life down too. And as you release it, you think, if I hold on to it, if I just grab for all the gusto, like the old slogan said, that'll maximize my life. Wrong. You maximize your life by laying it down. Now, there were 60 people online watching Andrew and Allie get married. How many of you were? Any of you all here? All right, folk down here. Now, Eric, where's Eric? He's, he stepped out. There he is. There's the best man, okay? He was the best man Wednesday on the boat out off the beach of Waikiki. And Andrew Crosby, our college minister, married Allie. The love of his life, and my brother was on the boat, and he said, now, repeat after me, you'll pledge this forever. And they both said, yes, till death. That's what they both said to one another. And today, as we go to another text, yet another text about family in Genesis 28, we are going to be looking at the instructions of Isaac to his son Jacob as he sends him out to go find a wife. And the reaction of the twin Esau to the instructions his father gives his brother. Family's important. Who you marry's important. I can't talk to you as if the church of Jesus Christ has worked the puzzle on marriage. I wish I could. Born-again people in the United States get divorced at a higher rate than agnostics and atheists. Did you know that? People who describe themselves as born-again. So we can't come to this subject with a lot of pride and arrogance and say, we know how to do marriage in the church of Jesus Christ because we're in just as much trouble with the issue of marriage in the church of Jesus Christ as they are outside those doors. That's the truth, statistically. I wish I didn't have to tell you. I thought about not telling you. All right? Well, maybe better not to tell them. That's in a Barna study from 2007. 
So brothers and sisters, we're going to come to the subject with humility. Saying, Lord, teach us by your spirit how to enter into marriage with wisdom. How to commit to a spouse for a lifetime. And how to live together with joy. I prayed for the people who are divorced. Who are sitting in these pews this morning. I prayed for the people who are getting a divorce. I prayed for the people who are married. I prayed for people who are unhappily married. And I prayed that God would help us work through this in a way that honors him. Where we can express his love in a world that sure needs it. In a world where the family is in trouble. The divorce rate is declining. For the first time in any census that we have taken in the United States, married households are now a minority nationwide. People are living together as an experiment for marriage, and statistically, those trial live-togethers are not doing very well. Of course, it's not in the Bible. That's not how you make your marriage last. Not, not according to Scripture. People are delaying marriage. They're getting married at an older age. I think for men, it's somewhere like 27 or 28 on average, when you say your first I do. For women, it's 26, something like that. And do you know that the elderly are cohabitating as well for financial reasons and government benefits? And so, divorce is actually on the decline. Now, let's look at the Scripture, okay? Genesis 28, we're sitting down with Father Isaac. Jesus said that many will come from the east and the west and the north and the south and they will sit down together with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. And when I read that and Jesus said that, I thought, well, we're the ones from the east and the west. We're those ones who are distant that were called in to be part of the kingdom. And he says, many will come from the east and the west, sit down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. I'd love to do that. So we're sitting down with Isaac now. We've been sitting down with Abraham and his son Isaac the whole year long. And this concludes six months of sitting down with these guys. I hope you've learned something. All right? Verse 1 of chapter 28 of Genesis So Isaac called for Jacob and blessed him and commanded him, Do not marry a Canaanite woman. Go at once to Padamaram, to the house of your mother's father, Bethuel. 
Take a wife for yourself there from among the daughters of Laban, your mother's brother. May God Almighty bless you and make you fruitful and increase your numbers until you become a community of peoples. May he give you and your descendants the blessing given to Abraham so that you may take possession of the land where you now live as an alien, the land God gave to Abraham. Then Isaac sent Jacob on his way, and he went to Padam Aram, to Laban, son of Bethuel, the Aramean, the brother of Rebekah, who is the mother of Jacob and Esau. Now Esau learned that Isaac had blessed Jacob and had sent him to Padam Aram to wait, take a wife from there, and that when he blessed him, he commanded him, do not marry a Canaanite woman. And that Jacob had obeyed his father and mother and had gone to Padam Aram. Esau then realized how displeasing the Canaanite women were to his father Isaac. So he went to Ishmael and married Mahalath, the sister of Nebaioth and daughter of Ishmael, son of Abraham, in addition to the wives he already had. All right. I don't think sending away Jacob is really much about ethnicity or preferences of that kind. I think they want Jacob to find somebody who has a spiritual path similar to his. And I see that in the text of Scripture throughout the patriarchal period. They are related to some of these other people, but he wants them to go back to Laban and the house of Bethuel. And here's what I think they're after. Isaac and Rebekah, Abraham and Sarah in the same way. They want their son to marry his soulmate. All right? Now, I hear that term used a lot. Marry your soulmate. But I think that's the idea behind this. Find somebody, Jacob, who is spiritually compatible with you. And Isaac, in the process of sending his son off, rehearses the blessing that has come to Abraham and then to himself and now to his son. And it is in the context of this divine blessing which he says, I want you to marry somebody besides a Canaanite woman. And it's not that the Canaanite women are not uh, appropriate in other ways. It's that they are not people of faith in the one true God. Now, this theme of marrying somebody who has a spiritual compatibility with you is in the New Testament as well, not just the Old Testament. The Apostle Paul says at one point, don't be unequally yoked with unbelievers. That's in 2 Corinthians chapter 6. He says, what fellowship does light have with darkness? What kind of fellowship are you going to have in a union where you're not spiritually compatible? 
I understand that your spiritual compatibility with somebody is not all that there is to you being happily married. I know that. There are other things too. And young people, you need to check these out and be very serious about them. We've already talked about them. When Abraham sent Eliezer to this same area to find Rebekah, Eliezer's criteria about Rebecca were character traits. He wanted her to have some, some character. And that's very important. So once you find somebody who confesses Jesus as Lord, you're not through checking out the person that you're going to marry. You want to find about, out about some other things. You also want to find out if this person is passionate like you in their faith. If you are taking seriously the lordship of Jesus Christ in your life, ask yourself the question, is this person taking seriously the lordship of Christ in his life? Is he seeking to live it out? Is he doing like the song says, I am yours, Lord, day after day, week after week. Is this the passion of his life? If she were to stop and describe herself, what would her self-identity be? Would it be similar to you as a person of faith? Or would they even mention their faith, their connection with God, and their seeking to trust Him? We can have, on the surface, a compatibility, and yet not really be compatible even at the spiritual level. Now, my father... Really beat this into his boys, all right? So I never dated anybody that wasn't a Christian. And Janet, my wife, was not a believer when I first met her. So I witnessed to her. Because I liked her. And this is the true story, all right? I talked to her about Jesus. Actually, I started a bus route in that old uh, 61 uh, station wagon, started picking up kids, and she was the first one I picked up and took to church. And the last one I took home, all right? (laughs) And uh, she trusted Christ one evening after I took her home from church. Prayed to receive Christ. My father baptized her. Then I started dating her. And then practically her whole family trusted Christ. And were baptized. That's the story of our 39 years of marriage together. You may say, well, I'm not married to somebody who's spiritually compatible with me. What do I do? Have a great marriage. That's what you do. You have a great marriage. You work on loving each other, serving one another, and the character traits that make a great marriage, and you determine that you're going to have a great marriage. You don't bail out because there's spiritual incompatibility. I want to give you a secret. You're not really compatible with anybody. All right? I mean, have you discovered that? I want to find somebody we're compatible with. Well, let me tell you, marriage is like two porcupines trying to curl up in the cold. All right? And so... That's just how it is. You have a great marriage. You say, well, I don't know if we can reach our full 
potential in this relationship. Well, Paul says it's better not to get married if you want to, you know, go off and be a missionary. He talks about how singleness is important. So, I mean, there are limits. We are in prior covenants, all right? We've made covenants. We've made promises. Let's keep them. Let's live in them. Let's make the most of them. Not, let's not live uh, with a frustration and despair about our future, whatever future we might have. God can make it great. So if you've made the decision and you're in a relationship and you know there's certain areas of incompatibility, join the rest of the world. It's true for all of us. We all have areas where we don't really mesh very well. It is true sometimes opposites attract. It happens. Hey, I want to put some hope in you. I know Isaac and Abraham have sent their sons off to find a wife of faith. From their family back home. I know too. That one of those Israelite warriors who charged into Jericho. Fell in love with a prostitute from Jericho. Named Rahab. Now she's one of the Canaanite women. But he married her. And she is in the line of King David and the line of the Messiah. And there was another Jewish boy that fell in love with a Moabitess. She's from a different place. But Ruth, too, is in the line of the Messiah. In fact, Luke, to help us all understand that nothing's impossible with God and he works things beautifully in ways we can't understand or comprehend when he gives the genealogy of Jesus he mentions by name just a few women and Rahab and Ruth are two of them you too can have a wonderful story of God's grace and provision and power in your life, whatever prior decisions you have made. Why? Because God has invited you into a covenant with him. And he is the awesome almighty God who is sovereign on the planet. And there's nothing that he cannot do understand point two Abraham's blessing catch it Isaac explains it here where he didn't when he first spoke to Jacob when he first gave the blessing to Jacob it was like he formulated the words for Esau you know the dew of heaven to be yours and the bounty of the earth to be yours and you got through hearing the blessing on Jacob and it was wonderful and your your brothers are going to serve you but then he comes around to knowing it's Jacob not Esau and now reiterating repeating the blessing and now he makes clear Jacob what I'm bestowing upon you is the blessing of your grandfather Abraham 
when God spoke to him and called him and blessed him and passed that blessing on to me and now on to you. And son, God's going to make your descendants multiplied. You're going to be the father of nations. And indeed, it is the 12 sons of Jacob who are the 12 tribes of Israel. Israel is a name Jacob will later get, prince of God. Right now, he's the supplanter. He's just crooked. God's got some work to do on his character all along through the years. But one day, he'll get the new name, Prince of God. And Israel itself is named after this twin who deceived his dear old dad into giving him the blessing. And now that it is over and Isaac has recognized the power and presence of God in his own deception and realizes this is what God is up to. He gives to Jacob a fuller explanation of all that is happening. And he says, not only are you going to be a, a man with a great multitude of descendants, but this land in which you now live as an alien, it's yours. It is based on this promise to Jacob and Isaac and Abraham that it is called the promised land. On Jordan's stormy banks I stand. I am bound for the promised land. All that language is right here embedded in the blessing that father gives to son. And now you need to know that this blessing which we just read, you are an heir to through Christ. It is your blessing. The promise is for you. We now understand God's ultimate goal in all the work he did with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and all of the nation of Israel and the covenantal period of that time and the sacrificial system and the priesthood and the prophets. All that he was doing was preparing for the promised one. The Lord Jesus who would come and completely fulfill all of the promises made in the law that was given and gather to himself a new people. And so the Apostle Paul says it clearly in Galatians chapter 3 verse 6. Consider Abraham, he says. He believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. And what Paul is saying all along the promise came through faith it wasn't just genetics it was faith understand then verse 7 that those who believed are children of Abraham the scriptures foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles by faith and announce the gospel in advance to Abraham all nations will be blessed through you so those who have faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. You are heirs of the promise. We understand now God is up to not just giving us a little geography on this planet. The promised land is life with him forever. That's what he's calling us into.
And his descendants are not physical descendants so much as spiritual descendants, people of faith. So he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, neither is circumcision outward and in the flesh, but he is a Jew who is one inwardly. He is a child of Abraham who is one inwardly. We receive this covenant promise through faith. We stand in the line of Abraham, the man of faith, claiming what God has promised through the generations, the blessing that he gives through faith. And we are a people who believe it is by grace you are saved through faith. Not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. Why should Jacob be blessed above all? It is the gift of God. Not of works. It's not about what you do, how good you are. You can't boast about it. You're saved by faith. You enter into the covenant of promise through faith. You say, well, I have trouble with giving my assent to a list of religious propositions. It's difficult for me to have faith. I want to challenge you to stop thinking about faith like a noun. Start thinking of it like a verb. The faith is you in the current moment of your life believing God. Believing his presence, his power, his goodness in your life. Affirming that he is with you. It is believing today Jesus died on the cross for you and made a way for you. That is faith. Faith is believing. It's more verb than noun. More action than reaction. More motion than emotion. Faith is you trusting God in this moment of your life. You say, well, it's hard for me. Well, God's given the gift of faith and it lies in your heart to be quickened and awakened by his spirit. Now Esau's reaction to all of this is worth noting. When I told my son what I was going to say right here, my son Joshua, he said, I've never heard that story I'll bet it hadn't clicked in your head either you've probably read it before Genesis 28 buzzed right through it Esau so wants to please his dad does that sound familiar to you I don't have to tell you to please your father Some of you have spent a lifetime trying to please that man and still waiting for the first compliment. You want him to be pleased. You want him to be satisfied and happy with how you live your life and what you do. The credentials you accumulate. You want your dad to be pleased with you. That is a very common human experience. And it's what's happened to Esau. And I suspect that part of the way he has turned out as a man of the field and a hunter with a bow and the arrow and a warrior and somebody who lives in the open country is because his desire to please his dad pushed him toward that. 
And in the end, he is bitterly disappointed. His dad gives the blessing to his twin brother. He cries and shouts out to his father, Bless me, even me, Osa! Don't you have something? One word of blessing for me, my father. And the scripture says, Esau sold his birthright, but he could not find a place of repentance, though he sought it with tears. And so he hears that his father has sent Jacob to marry somebody who's not a Canaanite. And Esau, for the first time, understands how displeased his father and mother have been with his wedding to the Hittite women. He married two of them. The scripture says that they were grieved, his parents were, by those marriages. So he goes out and marries a daughter of Ishmael. Just trying to please his dad. He married a daughter of Ishmael. Ishmael is outside the covenant of promise. He's repeated his same mistake for a third time. Stumbling around trying to please his father. There's some point in our life where if we are spiritually growing and self-aware, we've got to shift the focus of pleasing dad and mom to pleasing somebody else. We need to change that motivation of making my parents proud of me to making my father in heaven pleased with me. So Jesus came and his earthly dad, the man that raised him, died when he was young, we all expect. And so he began to talk more than any other teacher about the Father in heaven. And all our language about God as Father comes from Jesus. It's there once or twice in the Old Covenant, but in the New, in the teachings of Jesus, he introduces us to God as Father. And it's not just his vocabulary. When he tells stories about God, he casts God as a father who's waiting for his son to come back, the prodigal, looking on the horizon, expecting him to return. And he teaches us to pray, our father, say it with me, our father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Sometime in your spiritual journey, 
You switch from the face of your earthly father and mother flashing up when you make decisions and your life moves along to the Father in heaven who calls you to himself. Good parents try to help children make that switch so that when those kids are released into the world and away from the eyes of mom and dad, they still know that they are in the presence of the Father who watches over them. When their ethics is anchored in the Father's love, his purpose, and his pleasure, then they have a great foundation at college and on into young adulthood to make decisions based on the Lord who loves them. You got to make that switch. Some of us have to do that in all kinds of ways with our Father because we never knew a Father's love. And when preachers talk about fathers, you can't relate. There are so many absent fathers, fathers that are gone. When I taught scriptures in the women's prison, which I did for six years, I had to stop using the language of father. Or if I mentioned the father, I had to stop and explain. Because for 90% of the women locked up, the word father conjures up a painful, difficult image for them. Or just a void in a vacuum. The father in heaven can be for you the one who cares and loves. He is ultimately the great father the one whom every father wants to be like, who loves his children with mercy and grace and calls them to himself. Jesus says, the God whom we serve is like a dad in that he's building a great big mansion and there's rooms for every child in that mansion. I go to prepare a place for you. In my father's house are many rooms. That's what Jesus said. He said the Father in heaven is like a dad in that he's got a great big banquet hall. And he's got a place for, your, for you to sit with your name on it. And one day we're going to sit down at a great feast with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of God at the Father's table. I told someone this week, you believe in a power that has brought you into being. That is good. You believe there's something out there. That's good. You've got to make another step. You've got to believe that the power that has brought you into being, the God who brought it all into creation, is good. It will change your life to realize God is good. He is good. And for him to be your father is good. It is liberating. It is life. You can lay down your life for a father like that in the arms of a father like that, committing all of yourself to a father like that. This is the father that Jesus describes. He is the one who made you sent his one and only son to die in your place on the cross for your sin 
raised him up the third day and now calls you to faith through his love and power. I think for many, it is time to take the step and say, Lord, I still have got unanswered questions, but this I know. The way I've traveled doesn't make sense anymore. And I want to walk your way and have a new life. And today I'm stepping out and believing that you are a good God who loves me and sent your son to rescue me. And I'm receiving him as Lord and Savior. And I am believing. Let's bow together. If you long to believe, to place your faith in the God who made you, who sent Jesus, his son, would you just pray where you are? Dear Lord, I know I'm a sinner. Please forgive me for my sin. I open my life to you, and I give you my life. Make me the person you want me to be. Thank you for saving me. Amen.